I started out in my very early years out of college. I worked for the IBM company. Well, it was a subsidiary of the IBM company. It was when they were first getting into the software world, they had a subsidiary company and I was employed in sales and learned an enormous amount. It was my graduate school. You, you, you worked out of a local office, but you went off for training, you would come back. And it went over um, 16 months or something. So time in the office, time in classroom, and you know, it's a little bit like you're gonna go to live in Spain, and if you can just speak some of the language, you're better than if you speak none of it. So I learned the technology side of the business at the level of a broken Spanish, but it was helpful because I could identify with the things that needed to happen to design a system to do whatever process my business client needed. I benefited more from that than I would have benefited from going to business school. I've never looked back to go to business school, so it's just my conclusion of what they taught me. I was able to go out and be successful early on with the IBM company and built enough confidence that allowed me to say, hey, I think I could maybe succeed in my own business. And of course, I didn't know what I didn't know and ran into a lot of obstacles. <laughs> I always remember my exit interview in our office with the wizened veteran. You know, he seemed very old to me because I'm in my, tw I'm 24, going on being 25. And this fellow's in his 60s and he's the senior citizen in the office. Bruce Smith was his name, he was a wonderful man. And he called me in and he said, look, Ken, he said, I, I want to tell you, I, I uh, think you have a lot of skills. You've done a great job for us. He said, I want you to understand that often people starting their own business don't succeed. And I hope that you will, but I want you to know you would have a home here if you wanted to come back. And then he said, and I want to give you some advice about being in business. He said, it, you're, you're going to have a lot of dark days. And, 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 and he said, the thing that I would tell you you need to learn to do is manage your time. Because there's going to be a lot of demands on you. And he said, you know, time, time has two measurements, length and intensity. And he said, I would advise you to be intense about how you use your time. I think he was a wise man. And he wished me well. And I think it was, it was really valuable to me to know that I was well enough respected there that I could come crawling back <laughs> if it didn't work out. Which is a huge gift to an aspiring entrepreneur a sense of security that many don't have. This would be more than 50 years ago. It's why I remember the conversation just like it was yesterday and the vividness of that advice he gave to me. The software world was just really getting started. The word software was not born. You know, it was hardware, programming and systems design, etc., morphed into the word software. So my friend thought that we could go out and start our own software company, and we did. And it was a struggle from day two. 
<laughs> I think we celebrated on day one, but on day two, it began the reality of what starting and operating a business really is. Within a year, my friend who had a family and was very capable guy, you know, we were struggling financially. He got an opportunity to go with a very large banking company in their technology group, and he decided to leave. And so here I am stuck, you know, now without my original partner and a group of people who backed us and we were on the edge of failure and I felt a sense of duty, you know, that I couldn't really give up. And so in year two of my company, I called the staff together and I did two things. Went to the staff and said, look, we have to make some real sacrifices here. We need to all look at ourselves and determine what pay cuts we can take to keep this going. And I will agree for the next year to work for free. I won't take a salary. And each of the rest of you, I would like you to think what you can do. I then was able to go to my outside investors and say, look, here's where we are. Here's what we all have agreed to do. And I need each of you to consider whether you will make another investment to give us a, a chance to make it. And most of them did. And we continued to operate. And you know, hard work tends to pay off. And within the second year, we hit on a client relationship with a substantial local company who signed to be a customer, a very large customer. And that kind of got us to the point where we were in the black. And we operated uh, for a couple years. And then I met my now more than 50 year partner who had a similar story. And we decided the two small businesses made a merger of a 50-50 deal. It's now a world-renowned software company, the largest company in the world, providing enterprise software to run colleges and universities. A company called Datatel with thousands of employees worldwide. Later, Ken became one of the founding investors of the Arizona Diamondbacks, who achieved their greatest triumph of winning the 2001 World Series against a Yankees team whose city just endured their greatest tragedy of the September 11th terrorist attacks. This is Our American Stories, and now we continue our series, Better Health at Lower Cost. And we've talked about Blue Zones. There are five regions in the world characterized by Dan Buettner in his book as places that include the following in their lifestyle, moderate to regular physical activity, life purpose, stress reduction, moderate caloric intake, plant-based diet, moderate alcohol intake, engagement in spirituality or religion, engagement in family life, and engagement in social life. But if these are the types of things people in the Blue Zones are doing, who are the actual people that live in these types of places? Today, we introduce you to two of the younger members of their community in Loma Linda, California, Zella and David Floor. I was born in New Mexico in 1930, in the beginning of the Great Depression. My parents were relatively poor, so then I ended up going to Linwood Academy, which is an Adventist church school, 
and a, a PUC, Pacific Union College, which is a, an Adventist college in Northern California. And then I came here to Loma Linda to take the nurses course. And I graduated in 1953, so I'm an old timer around Loma Linda. From an early age, probably, I, I wanted to be in forestry work. Ended up at Humboldt State University and got a degree in forest management, bachelor of science. And from there, went to work for the United States Forest Service. 38 years later, I retired. Well, I, I was working on the San Bernardino National Forest, these mountains right over here. Yeah, I'd worked on there for 18 years, actually, all, all in different positions. And uh, I'd just gone through a divorce and uh, needed to start branching out a little bit after a couple years. And my first wife and I were hardened square dancers. Anyway, I was working at, at following my divorce, and, and I had at that time two nearly grown girls. One of them was at PUC, and the other one was at Monterey Bay Academy. I needed to get myself in gear and, and earn some money to keep those kids in school. And so I, I, I left Salt Lake City, came here to Loma Linda to my alma mater, and got a job in the medical center. And so, and this was a long time ago, 40 years ago, in 76, 77, something like that. Mm -hmm. After a couple of years, and I, I, I needed more of a social life. I was 48 years old. That's, it may seem a little old, <laughs> but it, it isn't. It's quite young. And so uh, I had some friends who were square dancers, and they said, oh, well, we know a, a caller who is starting a new class, which, of course, took eight or nine months. When we were all through with our class, the, the square dance clubs came around and were inviting us to come to different places. So this square dance met at, in Highland, in, over here in San Bernardino, and they met on Sunday afternoons, which was perfect for me, because I was working a shift in the, in the hospital where I had to get up at 5.30 every morning. So I couldn't go in the evenings. So the afternoon was fine. Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, I think it was, we had our square dance over there. So I met over there, and I think it was the second time we were there, he showed up. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> We were, we were accidentally put in the same square. The, the caller says, find your squares. And we ended up in the same square. And we ended up sitting the next, the next one out, getting acquainted. <laughs> then two years later, we were married. He was not uh, born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist, as I was. And so I come from a little bit different background, a different lifestyle, although not that much different. No, I grew up as a Presbyterian. Well, then when I went to college, I kind of got away from church. It was come and go, you know, and now that I met Zella, it's been steady going to church every week for 40 years now. Yeah. The thing of it is the Adventists go to church on, on Saturday, and so uh, we don't do square dancing on that. So, you know, so he, he says, why can't we go square dancing on Friday night or Saturday? Well, I'm busy. Well, well after a month or two, you know, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? On? And I said, well, I, I go to church. What do I have to do to go to church with you? Well, you come pick me up and dress decently behave and yourself. behave yourself and, <laughs> and then you can take me to church. And we were married at the, uh, at the age of, we were both around, close around 50. In the meantime, I had had cancer, breast cancer. In a healthful living person, it happens. About six months after we met, and then we, we, after we were married, we'd been married about six months, I had it again. The other breast, it was breast cancer each time. How does a healthy living person who is concentrating on being healthful 
get such a horrible thing as cancer. It happens. It happens among the best of us. I, I've got friends in here who have had cancer, who have had cancer. That, that's no, uh, healthful living is no indication that you're not going to have things go wrong with you. You know, we have, uh, we have genetic things that happen. We live, we're living in a, in, a, in a contaminated world. Uh, we've got inherited gene variants, you know, as, as we learn more about genetics, there, there are variants that, that come along that we inherit. And uh, my mother had breast cancer, my, her, her mother did, her sister did, uh, so there, it's, it's there. It doesn't happen, I, I was tested to see if I had it in the genetic makeup and I don't. I don't have it in the genetic makeup, it just happened. And that's what things are. But, but I feel that uh, my cancer was 40 years ago, count them, 40 years ago. And I count my survival from the breast cancer and my healthful life now because of the healthful condition I was in from my healthful living. Just because you get unhealthy things like this doesn't mean that it comes from your lifestyle. It, it can or it cannot, but your life, a healthy lifestyle will help you to overcome the problems that we run into. When I was all through, I had chemotherapy for the second time. The first time I did not need any chemotherapy. I asked the doctor who was, who was taking care of me to let me get a, a second opinion from someone just to make sure that we hadn't forgotten something. And he said, I think we'll just send you over to Stanford. Anyway, we went, to, we went over to Stanford and saw this doctor. I can't remember his name now, it doesn't matter because it was a long time ago. He probably has retired 40 years ago. And, uh, and, and he said, everything is fine. You, you look good, you've had good treatment, you've had everything. He said, I have two things to tell you to do. Number one is to keep your weight down and number two is to keep a positive attitude. Now, I myself broke those two things down. To keep my weight down, what do I need to do? You need to have a healthy diet, you need to exercise, you need to do all these things that go towards making, making you healthy, fresh air, plenty of water, all of these things help to keep your weight down. And the second thing, how do you keep a positive frame of mind? It's your family. This is, the, this is the, your surrounding, your support system. It's your family, it's your church, it's your attitude, your things that you do with your mind, how you keep active. I try to make it a habit to learn something new as I can, I read a lot. Now I'm in my late 80s and there are more people here in their 90s than you could shake a stick at. You know, they're just, we've got a couple here who are just hanging on for their 100th birthday and they're doing fine. Uh, and I plan to be one of them one of these days. Not there yet. Well, I ended up my career in San Francisco at the regional office of the Forcer. And uh, we, I retired and we said, well, where are we gonna live? You can live anywhere you want in the world. We decided to move here. And so we, we've been looking at retirement communities and settled on this one. And everybody says, why? And I says, it feels like home. It's a wonderful place to live. It's a fun place to live. We go to the Drayson three times a week. We go to a class over there that, uh, that, that caters to us uh, older people. <laughs> but uh, they, they call it chair aerobics. And so they do things that get our heart rate up and, and, and they, we practice on balance and we practice on things that, that are important for older people to keep from falling and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We're very fortunate to be in a place where we have all these things, uh, you know, uh, for us to use. The one thing we appreciate about the Drayson Center is when you're over 80, we have the run of the gymnasium 
for free. We take advantage of it as much as we can. I go down there and walk the, the outside track. There's an outside track there that, uh, that uh, if you walk it twice, you've walked a mile. And uh, we get down there. It's a, it's a quarter of a mile to walk up here to the gym. It's been a wonderful support to me. And that has been, that has been one of the things that has contributed to my good health, I'm, I'm sure. It, it has to be. Uh, I don't have any, any problems like that. So You know, this, this blue zone thing, We've, we've talked about, we talk about, a lot about it here. And most, there's nothing magic about Loma Linda. Everybody's come from someplace else that lives here. I mean, they come from Japan and all over the world. They've come here and they live here where we are. And so the blue zone is all over. It's the lifestyle. And of course, I will have to say that we're not perfect in following the blue zone recommendations. You know, but all of us, we, we we, you know, we fall down occasionally, we, we eat too much ice cream, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, but generally, we're, we, we try to live as healthy and close to our, uh, to our lifestyle as we can. Our healthy diet, our use of water, our exercise, our sleep, our rest, uh, our, our sense of community, our family, and our faith and trust in God. Those are the things that make the Blue Zone. And you've been listening to Zella and David Floor, and great job on that, Robbie, who went out to Loma Linda to study and to look at and learn from these remarkable people who have turned Loma Linda into a blue zone. Again, only five in the world. One happens to be right here in the United States. And as well as Zella said, you can trip over 90-year-olds here. And the 90-year-olds are out there walking more than most 40 or 50-year-olds probably each and every day. This is a part of our Better Health at Lower Cost series brought to us by the great people at the Stetson Family Office. Zella and David Floor's story, in the end, Loma Linda's story, and we're going to continue with more from this remarkable piece of earth in California here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Up next, a story about a famous general of the American Revolution, Mad Anthony Wayne. Wayne, in his time, was known to be a controversial man involved in numerous scandals, including being kicked out of Congress. But as it turns out, he's a lot more than that. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story. Chances are, if you're from the Midwest, you've probably heard of Mad Anthony Wayne before. Fort Wayne is named after him. Wayne County, where Detroit is located, is too. And there's a bridge bearing his name in Toledo, Ohio, but he's a lot more than just his namesakes. Here's Dr. Mary Stockwell, author of Unlikely General, Mad Anthony Wayne and the Battle for America, with why that is. I can tell you my own experience. When I would tell people I'm, gonna, I'm writing a book about Anthony Wayne, and they would say, why? 
why are you bothering? He was mad. He was a madman. And his name is everywhere out here. We don't just have a bridge about Anthony Wayne. We have Anthony Wayne vet clinics and Anthony Wayne plumbing and Anthony Wayne roofing and all kinds of things. But in the mind of most people, I started to ask them, what do you think about him? And they would say, well, he was this wild madman and he loved war and all these things. And that's, that's kind of who he is. Uh, within the last century, Wayne has kind of come into the memory of the American Revolution as just a wild man who loved to kill the British, and then he came out here and he just loved to kill the Indians. None of this is true. There's no resemblance to the real Anthony Wayne. He was born on New Year's Day, 1745, just outside of Philadelphia. He was very wealthy. Might have been one of the wealthiest young men who would participate in the revolution. His father trained him to be a lawyer, but Wayne wanted to be a soldier. And his father said, we're in the British Empire. You're a young colonial. You're never gonna make it in the British Army. But he had a vivid imagination. And from the time he was little, he was swept up in stories of warfare, the glory of it all, leading men in battle. He would later write as he was fighting the revolution. Sometimes he would look ahead and he would say, I can see myself on horseback and I'm riding into Philadelphia and we've won a great battle and the laurels are on me the way they were on Caesar, and the golden light is upon me. He loved that. He loved the camaraderie of being with his fellow men. He loved serving George Washington. But the dream was glory, and in his imagination, it all seemed so wonderful and so beautiful. You have to remember, too, that if a, a young boy was well-educated in revolutionary times or pre-revolutionary times, he would have learned Latin. And to learn Latin, you would have read the great writers in Latin, ancient Romans, one of the greatest writers was Julius Caesar. So he read all his commentaries. He knew every battle. And in his imagination, he ran it almost like a movie. Someday I'll be a part of this glorious enterprise and to think I'll, I'll win fame and fortune. I'll go down in the annals of my nation. But his father got him a job as a surveyor. He said, I think if he can get out in the, in the world and survey land, that will maybe get some of this energy off of him. What happens, though, is the American Revolution starts to get underway, and he joins the revolutionary cause. He becomes a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly, and he's one of the very first people in the country who says, it's time to break away from Great Britain. And he says uh, to anyone who will listen to him, either in the assembly or in all the taverns outside of Philadelphia, he says, um, we're a de facto republic. We don't have a king. We don't have nobility. We are the people. We should rule ourselves. He was on fire for the revolution the way Thomas Paine was, the way John Adams was long before the revolution started. And once the Continental Army starts to form, this childhood dream he had to be a soldier can finally be realized and he goes off to George Washington's camp on Long Island in 1776. Again, a um, very handsome man, beautifully dressed. His, fa his father taught him to always look your part. He knew every battle Julius Caesar ever fought. He bounds into Washington's camp. I am here to serve. I'm here to serve the revolution. I'm here to serve my nation. But he knew nothing really beyond what he had read in his ancient history books. But when Washington met him, he said, well, he's got one thing at least, and that's enthusiasm. 
it's interesting, the very first thing George Washington gave him to do, he said, oh, well, this man's a gentleman. Uh, how about you join us in a fox hunt? But very quickly, Wayne was given one assignment after another, and he becomes really better and better at it. The very first thing he was sent to do, he was sent with the American army to a place called Three Rivers in Canada. Now, this is June 1776. We as Americans often forget that we tried to invade Canada and get the Canadians over on our side. Every time we entered Canada, it ended in disaster. And in this battle of Three Rivers, the United States across the St. Lawrence River, the army is completely defeated. Who leads the retreat? Anthony Wayne. He releads the retreat of the army back into New York. And people say about him, he seems to snap to attention immediately once the battle begins. What he remembers, because he writes to his young wife about every battle he's going into, and he tells her, he goes, when I was heading to Three Rivers, the first thing I realized, all that glory and all that wonder of childhood is gone. I could possibly die in this horrible battle. What am I doing this for? But once the battle begins again, he snapped to attention. So Washington learned very quickly, if he needed somebody to help with a retreat, Wayne just naturally could move an army faster, get it out of danger. After losing the Battle of Three Rivers, Anthony Wayne would be sent to Fort Ticonderoga and hated every minute of it. He was out of the action, but the action would soon come. He goes on to the Battle of Brandywine. Now we're in September 1777. Washington calls him back. This is now a frightening time because the British Army is coming to take the city of Philadelphia. So Washington puts all his men along Brandywine Creek to the west, trying to stop them there. He puts Wayne right up on the bluff looking over Brandywine Creek, gives him the artillery. What's interesting about Wayne at this time, he realizes on the battlefield, something's going wrong. Goes to Washington and he said, I don't think we're in the right position. I think the British are not crossing where we think they're crossing. I think they're coming north. They're gonna come around Brandywine Creek. They're gonna attack us from the rear. We're gonna be surrounded. So he had an ability to figure out in the midst of a battle what was happening. George Washington made a terrible mistake. He told Wayne, go back up to that bluff. The British are crossing where we think they're crossing. Wayne was right. The Continental Army was almost surrounded, almost destroyed, but they got out of there. But despite Washington's mistake at Brandywine Creek, Anthony Wayne remained one of his greatest supporters, even though they had some major differences. George Washington was the kind of person who always controlled his emotions. Anthony Wayne, <laughs> was a very enthusiastic, wore his heart on his sleeve. He had no sense that anybody was greater or lesser than anyone else. He just befriended George Washington and was much warmer to him than probably Washington was to Wayne. Maybe the most wonderful things I discovered was, well, Wayne was Washington's cheerleader. Other people, again, they respected Washington, they kept him at a distance. Wayne didn't feel that way. He felt they were friends. Before every battle, he would write George Washington a letter saying, you're going to win. You're in a great position. Yes, Caesar did it before. You can do it. You can, you can win this battle. And when it was over and Washington didn't, lose, didn't win, he often lost the battle, who would he get a letter from? Anthony Wayne. And Wayne would say to him, we're in a better position than we were before we lost. We will get through this. You will get better. And he said, I, I want you to be the next uh, Julius Caesar. He realizes very quickly 
He's not Julius Caesar. This isn't going to be a war of glorious battles. This is going to be a war of attrition and staying in the field and keeping the army in the field. And finally, Wayne realizes, well, I was disappointed, maybe up to Valley Forge, that he's not Julius Caesar, but I realize this man that I love and respect so much, my elder brother, is a new kind of leader. He's a political leader. He's a moral leader. He's got to keep the army in the field. This is what a modern revolution looks like. Wayne's support for Washington would pay off, and he would work his way up the ranks in the Continental Army. But the war wasn't all glory for Anthony Wayne. And in fact, it became anything but for him. He's remembered for three big mistakes that he made. Washington gives him an assignment. He said, in the middle of the night, I want you to attack the baggage train of the British as they head east into Philadelphia. Just get the baggage train. Wayne gets his men up on the road into Philadelphia in between the Paoli and the Warren Tavern. The people come to him and say, the British know you're here. And he said, no, the British will not do this. I am not going to listen to farmers and children about where the British are. Well, in the middle of the night, the British did strike. It was called the Paoli Massacre. Many of his men were killed. He got them out of there. He retreated, which he was so good at. But if he had listened and stopped with his dreams of what he thought was going to happen and listened to what was happening to him on the ground, it wouldn't have happened. Then on January 1st, 1781, Wayne oversaw the Pennsylvania Line Mutiny, a situation that happened when countless men, tired of war, threw down their weapons and threatened to defect to the British Army. But it was a third failure that caused the press to apply a nickname to him that had been used by his own men. At a place called Green Spring Plantation, he's convinced, oh, oh, look, there's a baggage train of Cornwallis going back to North Carolina. Well, I'll, I'll attack it and kind of bloody their nose. He lines his men up and then he realizes, wait a minute, Cornwallis's entire army is still here. What am I to do? This man who can think so quickly on his feet said for the only time in his battle, he couldn't remember what to do. He goes, I don't know what to do. I don't think Julius Caesar was ever in this position. So finally he realized at the Battle of Camden, which had happened in South Carolina, the American army had been in a similar situation. They attacked to surprise the enemy and then they retreated quickly. That's what he did. He attacked, kind of stunned Cornwallis, and then they retreated away from Green Spring Plantation. He lost all his artillery, many of his horses. He lost many of his men. Again, Washington faulted him for that. And this is the first time you see the nickname Mad Anthony applied to him in the Northern press. He had been called mad just because of his terrible temper. He was got the nickname because he had a spy, a little Irish spy who would help him. And the spy would come and go as he pleased. Well, one night his, his name was Jemmy, Jemmy the Rover. Anthony Wayne's looking for him. Where is Jemmy? I, I need information on the British. And Jemmy's gone. When Jemmy comes back to camp that night, they tell him, Anthony Wayne's looking for you. And he's, you know, he's steaming. He's angry. And this is where the word mad comes from. The Irishman said, ah, then he's mad. He's mad. The general is mad. Uh, you know, best that I go off and, and not confront him. Jemmy was never seen again, even though Wayne told his wife, see if you can find him. That's, that's what the nickname was. But now people say, maybe he's mad, a little bit crazy and reckless on the battlefield. And Wayne would soon start to despair. He goes through an immense transformation in the revolution. And he gives a record of it in his really beautiful letters. 
he might start out in 1776, this is all glory, this is all wonderful, this is all fun. But as he watches his men suffer without clothes, without shoes, without food, without pay, always having to beg the political leaders and the people, the populace for help, he begins to despair over the cause, the American cause. And it begins to uh, wear on him. He shot uh, before Yorktown, that wound never heals. He becomes sick and he goes into depression. And his depression, he calls it, it's the blue damsels who come in the night. How can this be happening to us? How can we be a turning point in world history and the people don't support us? One of the most interesting things I discovered are his writings after Yorktown, when the Battle of Yorktown is won. Everyone is gloriously happy. I always think of Trumbull's beautiful painting when everybody's lined up at Yorktown. It's so stunningly beautiful. And that's not what happened. That's not what Wayne remembered. Wayne remembered how the British had to walk with the Hessians on this thing called the surrender. They walked out to the surrender field. You can see it in Yorktown today. Wayne, in the midst of all this jubilation, he never forgot, he looked across the way and there were the French in their silks and satins, they were gorgeous. And he looked at his own men on the other side of the road and he said, we're barefoot. They have, some of my men couldn't even stand here. They couldn't even cover themselves. Their clothes are threadbare. And that set him into a despair. How can we be a nation that doesn't understand what's at stake? And he begged Washington, I'm going home. Uh, it suddenly dawned on him, wait a minute, I have a little boy and a little girl. I left them as infants, Margareta and Isaac. I have to get an education for Isaac and a trade. I've got to make a fine lady out of Margareta. I've got to get her into school and get her married. And he says, I'm going home. I've had it. And Washington says, no, you're going to Georgia. You're going to go fight uh, with Nathaniel Green. And in a, a terrible campaign, 1782 to 1783, that is completely forgotten today, Wayne goes south and he's given a 500-man army and he's told you gotta bring peace to Georgia and make sure the government works and Georgia remains a state. That's where he really sinks into despair. That's where he writes to his wife who doesn't even write to him anymore. And he says, "This I'm satiated of this horror trade of blood. I can't, I don't wanna do this anymore but he somehow secures Georgia. After the war, Wayne was at his lowest point. The British were defeated, he had secured Georgia, and his dreams of an independent United States were made reality. But his life was shattered, and so was his marriage. Anthony Wayne was again married when he was very young to a girl named Mary, and he called her Polly. He had two children very quickly, a little girl, Margareta, a little boy, Isaac. They were only about four and two when he goes off to Philadelphia. It appeared to be a happy marriage, but as the war goes on and he is, becomes a famous general, women begin to flock to him. And in the beginning, he has flirtations with women, but as time goes on, he has actual romances with women. He falls madly in love with Nathaniel Green's wife, Catherine Green. She was a beauty. She had a temperament like him, kind of witty, sarcastic, loved to dance, but also a tendency to despair. Uh, he was so close to Catherine Green, people would tell Nathaniel Green 
this great general, you better watch it. Your wife and your friend, best friend, something's going on. And you say, no, no, they're not crossing the line. But she was the love of his life, absolute love of his life. News of this starts to come back to Mrs. Wang. And for a while, she kind of pushes it aside. These stories can't be true. But a point finally comes when she realizes, I've lost him. It's the way, say you're a movie star, a rock star, and you go off and you have this adulation, even in the midst of suffering, and you forget your family. The real break for Mrs. Wayne comes at Yorktown. Wayne has come home after so many battles. He says, I'm gonna come home, the war is over, I can't do this anymore. And when he goes off to Yorktown, and then he has to go off to Georgia, there's a break there and she never quite forgives him, and they never quite restore the relationship, but he never stops writing to her. He writes to her like he does to Washington before every battle. He writes to her after every battle. He doesn't ask her about herself, but it would have driven me nuts if I was Mrs. Wing. But he pours out maybe his best writing to this love of his, of his youth, and he tells her, about the transformation he's passing through and that he doesn't, doesn't like war anymore, he doesn't want glory, and he's losing so much. Wayne also had a hard time settling down after so many years of bloody conflict. After the revolution, he can't go home again. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Best Years of Our Lives about men who come back from World War II, but um, my father was in World War II and he used to say, watch that movie. It's hard to be in this thick of battle and then to come home and do normal things. He tries to come home, he can't settle down. Georgia has given him a plantation outside of Savannah for his services in the war. He goes down there, he's convinced I'm gonna become this great planter. It's a disaster. He ends up in total debt. His depression gr grows greater and greater and greater. He drinks heavily, he's sick, he has the gout. On most mornings, he can't even stand. He has to wrap his arms and legs in flannel. His body is really suffering. But he tells his wife, I, I'm really doing this for you and the children. I'm trying to make money. I think he was doing it just because he couldn't give up the struggle after the war was over. He goes so far into debt by about 1790, 1791, he almost sells off his family's farm and leaves his family homeless. In Pennsylvania, his friends are stunned. They're saying, Wayne, you're, you've lost your mind. Come back to Pennsylvania. Stop this. He finally um, is facing debtor's prison. He's so afraid he's going to go into debtor's prison. His children, you know, he's lost his relationship with his children. And he decides, you know, if I run for office, I think you get immunity from prison. So in 1791, he runs for the House of Representatives from Georgia. He gets elected. He gets to Congress, he sits in Congress, he says, I'm safe, I paid my debts, I sold my southern plantation, everything's great. And the man he defeated shows up in Philadelphia, comes to Congress and said, Wayne's supporters stuffed ballot boxes to get him elected. He didn't know about it, but it was corrupt. And Wayne is thrown out of Congress. And he has just been humiliated by being thrown out of Congress. So by the early 1790s, when George Washington is president, Wayne is quite a scandalous man. But nevertheless, the United States was in a predicament. In the West, we were having massive issues with fighting the Indians. And Washington needed a general. Washington has a plan to move us West. 
And can you imagine if we hadn't moved across the Appalachians, if we hadn't crossed the Ohio, if we hadn't gotten all the way out to the Mississippi River, we would have been 13 little states, you know, dying on the vine. Washington has this plan where I'll negotiate with the Indians, I'll respect them, I'll buy their land, I'll, I'll pay them money and goods every year, and they'll slowly allow the Americans to cross the Ohio River. They signed treaties to do that, but then they confederated with the help of the British. They were led by Little Turtle, Blue Jacket, uh, great chiefs like that. They just say, Washington, if you cross the Ohio River, it'll run red with the blood of your young men. Washington keeps negotiating, but one army is destroyed in 1790 under Harmer. November 1791, a second army is destroyed under Arthur St. Clair. At this very moment, Wayne is just thrown out of Congress, and George Washington has to find a general. He's desperate. What he does is he gets a list of all the people who had been generals through the American Revolution, looks down the list. Oh my Lord, he said, I need somebody active, brave, and sober. These men are all old, sick, and tired. He sees everybody and he criticizes everybody. He looks at Wayne, he doesn't, he's worried about Wayne. Yes, he's active, yeah, he's enterprising, but oh, maybe he doesn't always have the best judgment. I don't know if I can send this man westward. Will he, will there be a mutiny? Will he spend too much money when I've got, you know, I've got James Madison breathing down my neck about my expenditures. Should I choose him? He remembers his mistakes. He forgets everything he did. He tells his cabinet, I'm thinking about Wayne. And they explode. It's Knox at war, it's Jefferson at state, it's Hamilton at treasury. They go, you can't pick this man. He's too, he's too scandalous. He, he's just, just, please don't do it. But Washington has to look back. What about Wayne does he know nobody else knows? Well, he knows that Wayne thinks he's perfection. He knows that Wayne is devoted to him. He remembers that, that if I pick him, he'll fight with me, he'll stay with me, he won't turn on me. He remembers those letters. Washington remembers how before every battle, he'd get this great letter, you can do it, afterward, he would write the, we'll still win. Uh, probably the last two things in his favor, he was from Pennsylvania. Washington didn't want to appear as if the West belonged to Virginia. He kept appointing generals from Pennsylvania to go fight the Indians when necessary. And the last thing, Wayne wanted the job. Wayne had been writing to politicians since 1789 when the Constitution is, is approved. I'll do anything. What do you want me to do? I will, I will help America. If there's something I can do to help my country, let me do it. And Wayne and Washington says, I'm taking a chance on Anthony Wayne. And again, when he does, he has to appoint him in 1792 to command this new army in the West. And people write to him like, um, how can you appoint this man with all these scandals and all this? And Washington says I, he's got to overcome his foibles, but Wayne also understands the seriousness of the situation and he'll live up to it. He remembered the French and Indian Wars, little boy, and he knew there were exciting tales of warfare over the mountains. His father fought in the French and Indian War. But he has no experience with Indians except uh, uh, women up at uh, Fort Ticonderoga. He sees the Indian women who come into the fort uh, often as mistresses of the soldiers. But no experience fighting anybody. No experience until he gets to Georgia. 
when he gets to Georgia and he has to deal with the Creek Indians who have seen their trade disrupted because he's now breaking their tie with the British in Savannah, he writes speeches to them. They're almost embarrassing to read. You know, he has no idea who he's talking to, that he's talking to real people who are traders, who are involved in the British economy. And he tells the Indians, you're simple children of the forest, you know. You stay over there and hunt your deer. Let the white man over here fight our battles and we'll be friends when the war's over. His camp is ambushed in 1783. He comes close to being killed. That kind of wakes him up. You know, these are real people. They are deeply involved with the world economy. They're deeply involved with diplomacy. They're great fighters. And he gains a respect for the Indians almost overnight. He talks to anybody who's been out west and he says, I am going to learn how they fight and I'm going to show them the respect they deserve. These are not savages. These are the top soldiers. They know this continent better than we do. My God, I'm going to have to train my army to be as good as them. An absolute terror. <laughs> he, when he leaves Philadelphia in the spring of 1792, he writes his last will and testament. He goes, I'm not coming back from this alive. The power on the North American continent in the 1790s, not the United States, we're weak. The power, the great confederation nations out west, the Shawnee, the Delaware, and the British who were on American soil arming and supporting them. The British wanted us defeated in the west. So he comes west with immense respect and he's got to teach his men how to respect the Indians more than anything else he discovers. I gotta find ways to teach them not to be afraid because my men are terrified. Let's say that you're going up against the British. That's frightening. You line up the Continental Army on one side, the British line up on the other, and they keep coming after you in waves and waves and waves. Wayne says, that's, that's frightening enough. He said, that the difference is if you're going into the wilderness, you've got to train your army and have them so perfectly trained because as you're marching, probably hoping for a confrontation or afraid of a confrontation with them, he said, they're tracking you, but you'll never see them. You'll never see them until the moment they strike. And he said, when they line up, they will line up, not like savages, they're gonna line up against you, and they will command the place, the time, the battle. If you don't immediately get into position and don't immediately throw back their first assault, you're going to be surrounded, you're going to be defeated, and there's no quarter. It's not like you're going to be a prisoner of the British and sent off to a prison ship. You will be killed. And you will be killed in some horrifying ways. And the hard training would work for Wayne. And luckily so. Because negotiations would break down and he would once again be forced to fight. He gets command of the army. There is no army. It's been wiped out in November 1791. And Washington tells him, you're the commander of this new thing, we're going to call it the Legion of the United States. Get out first to Pittsburgh, he'll later be sent to Cincinnati, and then he'll be sent up to a place called Greenville where he built this big fort. They promise him 5,000 men. He never gets more than about 1,000 men. And they said, train the men so perfectly that if we call you into battle, you will defeat them. But don't scare the Indians because the negotiations are ongoing, so don't appear too aggressive. If we do tell you the negotiations have broken down and you must fight, then you will fight. And Wayne does what he's told. He said, I, I can train the men to march. 
I can train them to follow orders. I can train them to shoot. They can't shoot. But he said, the thing that I, I'm really struggling with, they're so terrified. In the very first Indian attack, he lines his men up and he says, okay, I'm going to go up on the ramparts, check for the Indians, and then I'm going to come back and we'll be ready to fight. Indians aren't there. When he turns around to go back to his men, they've all fled. They've completely fled. They don't want to fight. And he, he had to do this a few times when he was training his men when they were so terrified. He said, all right, line everybody up, gets on his horse, goes back and forth in front of his men, this, this army he's trying to put together. He said, if the battle begins and the riflemen up at the front run, I'm going to order the dragoons behind them to shoot the riflemen. If the dragoons run, then the light infantry behind them shoot the dragoons. If everybody runs, I'm going to turn my own artillery on you guys. What he wanted them to be uh, was more afraid of him than the, than the enemy. And he also said, um, if we all run, we all die, because there's no quarter in Indian warfare. After two years of training his men, Washington tells Knox to, to tell Wayne, the negotiations are done. Start taking that thousand-man army, call up the Kentucky militia, the mounted riflemen, start marching north, go up the Maumee River towards Lake Erie. The British have just built an illegal fort there in 1794. It's south of Detroit. They're arming. They're directing the Indians. The, they're, you're probably going to meet the Indians and the British and the Canadian militia somewhere between Greenville and what is now the city of Toledo, Ohio. Just start marching. You must defeat them. And when you defeat them, you got to get a treaty. It's a nerve-wracking march, and it's finally August the 19th. No Indians have attacked them. And they begin the final march on the morning of August the 20th. The night before this, there's been a terrible rainstorm, and all of the drums have lost their, you know, their ability to pound. They're all loosened in the rain. And Wayne is like, I've trained you guys for two years to march to my orders and to line up in battle uh, in a line against the Indians based on these. He calls this young lieutenant who has been, uh, he's taken liking to, and he puts a green sash around him. And he says, if the battle comes tomorrow, you have to ride back and forth through the lines with my orders. And that young man with the green sash is William Henry Harrison. The shots ring out against Wayne's men. Wayne's men run in terror. And suddenly, uh, within five minutes, Wayne has them in perfect order. Everybody lines up in these huge, two huge parallel lines against the Indians. They're fighting over trees that were downed. The battle goes on for about maybe an hour. Indians attack on the right, they attack on the left, they come up the center. The eyewitnesses of the Indians who were in the battle are amazing. They go, he didn't fold. They held their line. And they said, suddenly we heard Wayne's trumpets. We hear his trumpets on the left, the right, the center. He's coming after us. He's surrounding us. And they flee the field. They run back about three or four miles to this illegal British fort and the British, and then they closed the gates in the faces of these Indians. And they said, we don't know you. And they, we didn't have anything to do with this battle. And then the Indians have to flee with their families back to wherever they've come. It's, we now call it the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Wayne called it the Battle of the Rapids. He said, I remember when we got up to the rapids of the river, 
bang, the Indian line was formed against us. It was classic Brandywine, classic Germantown. They were lined up to fight us and we were ready. We, we didn't fold. My men, he was stunned. He never recovered from this victory. He goes, I, I think I won a victory. Um, it, it's, uh, it was, again, this is the battle that has all the monuments out here, but nobody knows who Wayne was or what he was fighting about. He's fighting to allow Americans to settle north of the Ohio. It takes a year for the Indians to finally come in and write a treaty. They come in a year later, they write the Treaty of Greenville, and they say, all right, America, you can settle north of the Ohio. We'll move back towards the lakes. We will ally with each other. We'll trade with each other. And the British also signed Jay's Treaty, and they say, we leave. We leave. We're going back to Canada. It's... Uh, in the end, a great victory. What Wayne has really won is about maybe 10 years of peace, 1795 to 1805, to allow Americas to grow westward and become stronger and um, really win the country from the Appalachians to the Mississippi, win it for real. That's, that's the military side of things. That's the battle that Anthony Wayne wins, but he, he almost never for the few main, remaining months of his life could hardly believe that he actually trained an army that they stood and fight and they won and defeated this powerful enemy. And great work on that, Monty, and a special thanks to Dr. Mary Stockwell, author of Unlikely General, Mad Anthony Wayne and the Battle for America. So much epic storytelling there. He had no experience fighting the Indians or with the Indians, but he came to respect them as adversaries as real people, and in the end, grew to command a real fighting force that was able to achieve General Washington's objectives. A terrific story from a terrific storyteller. And if you have stories to tell, send them to OurAmericanStories.com, a book that you think we should cover, a family story, anything and everything. We love doing it. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. You can send your suggestions to us. The story of Mad Anthony Wayne as told by a great historian, Mary Stockwell, here on Our American Stories. 